Well, it was a Friday night when I was in college, but I remember it well. I, had a, I was living on a second-story apartment, and I had a friend from my major that I had just met that I invited over, came over and joined me and my roommates for dinner, and then they disappeared, and I'm just sitting talking with this uh, friend who's in my major, and I got asking him, you know, get-to-know-you kind of questions. Tell me about where you grew up. Tell me about your family. And he told me about his siblings, and then he began talking about his parents. And the more he talked, he began to share... Uh, hurts and disappointments that he had had at quite a vulnerable level and how he was at odds with them even though he was away at school. And I'm thinking, well, you know, you're, a, you're in college now and let, you can let some of that go. You're not even living at home. But he's kind of, he's deeply troubled and pretty soon tears appear in his eyes and then he, he keeps talking about it and, and repeating things. Pretty soon he's openly crying and then he stood up and he said, oh, what's the use? And I didn't know whether he was going to just run right off our balcony um, and I feared he was going to you know, do himself harm, so he was really sobbing. So I put my arms around him to comfort him. I'm standing there trying to help the emotional storm to pass, and uh, he's crying uncontrollably on my shoulder. Finally, he takes a breath, and he says, the reason I'm, I, my parents are rejecting me right now is I just told them I'm gay. <laughs> I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Now, my first thought is, why am I hugging you like this? And I was ready to recoil and kind of back up and realize, no, to let go right now would be rejection. Christ would not be rejecting him, and I'm standing in the place of Christ. So just wait. And it was awkward, and it was uncomfortable, and it wasn't about me either. And he kept crying and grieving over his brokenness, and, uh, and uh, I did my best to represent Christ. And I, I don't remember how it ends. Maybe it never ends. Because we live in a world, and we're talking a new start in a new series today on sex, money, and power. And, and so today we're talking about the sex, and there's a lot of brokenness in this area, and there are lies that are put forth as truth in this area of sexuality and identity. And uh, I, I don't know that I can adequately cover it in the time that we have. And uh, I know that with the pastors as we were preparing, because we worked together to get this ready, I had more comments and more input and more questions and more thoughts that came from them. So I thought, if you end up being the same way, that's where to have some overflow afterwards. If you want to just have conversation, we would welcome that. But there is a lot of good guidance in God's Word about this, because we live in a, in a world that is willing to, to lie to us. There's confusion and uh, assumptions and distortions. And if you tell a lie over and over and over and over and over, it's still a lie. And if, if, if you say it louder, a lie is still a lie. And here's the big deal. God loves you. He designed you himself. He made you special. And he wants to be in a relationship with you. And he gives you his guidance in his word. And you get to choose whether you're going to accept his offer or not. And when you choose God and being in a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, God forgives your sin and he fills your life with purpose and love and joy and peace. And he prepares a place for you in heaven. And when you choose to keep yourself in charge of your life, well, then you're on your own. So who do you think can help you be and become the best you you could possibly be, the most authentic you. God, the creator and, uh, and the designer of the entire earth, the one who watched you be formed in your mother's womb, who uh, you know, knows your personality, who gave you your birthday, and who's already counted the number of days. He's marked the day that you're going to, to die. And every day in between, uh, you know, uh, did all that before you were ever born? Him or you? Well, we know this for sure. You were created by God 
who really, really loves you. You were wired by God. You were designed by him as a sexual being. And it's not a mistake. It wasn't an oversight. It's part of God's plan for his creation. So how do you decide what is your identity or guiding factors? What's, who's going to be the authority and guide your life? Is it going to be you? Is it going to be the world around you and the messages that the world is sending? Because the world is willing to lie to you. Or is it going to be God? who gives you God's word on the subject with God's Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts. See, all roads lead somewhere, but these three choices do not lead to the same place. You'll end up somewhere very different. So we all deal with sex and sexuality, and it, it makes sense. It's, it's very private, and nobody handles this area perfectly in their life. No one ever has. And we keep it private because, not that it was shameful, it, it's, it's God's gift. And not all of us have always dealt with it all that well. We basically all have come up short one way or another, failing in this area. And people carry disappointments and hurts and feel guilty. We all have scars, and some have been abused in this area. Some have hurt or wounded others. So you can't really say it's a topic that doesn't apply to you or doesn't apply to you anymore. I mean, some would tell me, you know, we're too old, we're past that, and we don't care about it anymore. You're missing the point. Some would say they're too young, or some would say, you know, what do you know about the pressures? You're married. Or they would say, what do you know about it? They used to say, what do you know? You're single. And so how do you get at this? I mean, sex and sexuality, gender issues are very close to the center of every one of us. It's a big deal. It's part of what makes you you. And that was God's design. But we've got to be careful not to grab onto a counterfeit version of it. See, the big idea is that God has given us many good gifts. But when sin gets a hold of it, we lose sight and a hold of us. Then we lose sight of who we really are and the good things that God has given us we can end up putting in the place of God. So we worship the creation rather than the creator. And then we get ensnared and enslaved. So let's start at the beginning. I know you have your finger, what, page 481 or 478 or 462 or something, but anyway, go to maybe page 1. Genesis 1, right at the beginning, talks how God created the world and he created people and he created pleasure and he created sex. And God created two people, Adam and Eve, and he placed these perfect people in a perfect garden and he told them they could have everything there, everything they wanted, except there's just one tree, don't touch it or you'll die. That gave them choice. And they could choose to enjoy the entire garden or they could, I think the, there was one tree and they just worked their little path all the way around it. Why they didn't just build a wall and say, there, we took care of it. Now we can just enjoy the rest of it and not think about it. But instead, they walk around that tree and they began to ask the question, was God telling the truth or was God lying to us? And I know their question was, that question, I mean, it was a subtle charge from the tempter who showed up, you know, a little while later, that early on in the struggle here between good and evil, he's tempting these people to follow their own urges rather than God's guidelines. God had been very specific, very clear. Don't touch that tree. Don't eat its fruit or you'll die. Was he telling the truth? Was he lying? By Genesis 3, people have been deceived into a choice between obeying God or following their own urges, and they chose poorly, and there were consequences. Now, Pastor John Piper wrote a book on the dangers of sex, money, and power entitled called Living in the, it's called Living in the Light. 
So I want to quote from his chapter on the pleasure-destroying dangers of sex. Here's what he says. When Satan wanted to destroy Adam and Eve's supreme pleasure in the sinless enjoyment of God's friendship, he didn't present them with a duty, but with a delight. They saw the tree from which God had forbidden them to eat, that it was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise. So they took and they ate. And the pathway to the destruction of their pleasure was good and a delight and a desire. And Satan's trick was to make the fruit look more desirable than God. And it worked. And our culture does the same trick with almost all of God's good gifts. Our sinful hearts can do it too. So, end quote. So what actually happened that day? Big picture. They were given a free choice. Honor God by obeying what God says or Choose your own way. Put yourself in charge. Do what, you, what your urges tell you to do. And they chose to go against God. Later, here's how Paul explained what happened. It's in Romans chapter 1, if you want to look there with me. Romans 1, I'm starting verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Their thinking was futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They didn't ask the right questions. They didn't say, what does God want? They said, what is the world telling me to do? Or what do I feel? They believed the lie that they could go against God's design and be okay. And it says the lights went out. They chose to live in the darkness rather than in the light of God. And there were consequences. Look at verse 24, Romans 1, 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them up. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They traded the real deal for a counterfeit. It gets worse. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. I think that's the third time, the second time he's told us that. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and it goes downhill from there if you keep reading. God gave them up. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They bought the lie. Now, Paul uses same-sex relations as an example of exchanging the truth for a lie. But he could have used the example of any number of sexual sins. I mean, this exchange happens. I mean, adultery, exchanging a spouse for an illicit partner. Fornication, exchanging God's purity and his call to chastity in singleness for unmarried sex. Or lust, exchanging purity for pornography. All of them, all our sexual sinning is rooted in this. We don't treasure the glory of God as supremely desirable over all things. Simply do we trust the God of the universe knows what is truly good for us and will give us good? Or do we let the darkness of the lie persuade us that one little illicit pressure or, or pleasure or another is, is more desired than God? 
Instead of choosing God and life and light and love and joy and peace, they, or we, choose self and sin and separation and distance and distortion and judgment and death. Now, you're not going to hear that out in the world. And we don't often tell ourselves that message, that we need to follow Christ instead of ourself if we're going to truly live. Now, God had given these first human beings blessings, many blessings. They're in the perfect garden with a perfect spouse. God gave them a marriage and a perfect relationship and sexual expression. But selfish choices turned blessings into the curse and the consequence of sin. Here's the good news. God is still reaching out. He gave the law to live by. We think of the law as kind of restraining the first books in the Bible, Matthew, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But really what they are is they're like a mirror. The law holds up a mirror to you and to me so that we can see the mud on our face. And the truth is we all have mud on our face. So God's intention is that we would look in the mirror of his word, we would see the mud on our face, we would take appropriate action to get cleaned up and become presentable to God once again. And you can't get cleaned up by yourself. It's a stain. And the only way to get free of it is Jesus to, to, to accept Jesus' offer of his blood, which cleanses the stain of our sin and can make us totally clean. He can make us as white as snow, even though we've been stained by sin. So this law is really intended to be another blessing, to give us the warning, to give us the mirror to look at, to give us God's guidance. But even that blessing people took and turned into a bellyache. When we pick up Matthew 19, we track in with Jesus, and he's been walking, and he's been talking about forgiveness, and he has been healing, and he's been doing miracles. He's been feeding people. And then you get to chapter 19, it says this. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. He is headed, you remember, to Jerusalem to go and suffer and die for the sin of the world, for yours and for mine. And he's leaving Galilee, which of all the places in the world Jesus could have chosen to arrive to do his ministry, it was Galilee. He loved it there. And he's leaving it behind. This is the last time and place that uh, he is in Galilee until after his uh, death in Jerusalem and his resurrection. And verse 2, large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. It's still the best plan to follow Jesus wherever he leads, to be part of the crowd that says, Jesus, I will walk with you wherever you go. Following Jesus, listening to Jesus, just being in Jesus' presence still brings healing to our hurts. Of course, look who came to spoil the party. Verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So Jesus has been teaching God's word, and all of a sudden the Pharisees want to show up, and they want to test Jesus. They kind of thrust this question on him. They bring up the topic of divorce, and Jesus ends up using it as an opportunity to talk about God's greater plan for uh, sex and for relationships and for marriage. So why did they ask him this? What's their motive? Are they there to learn from Jesus or just to embroil him in their argument? 
I mean, the, fest, the Pharisees show up, and I went back and checked. I started in Matthew looking for where do the Pharisees show up to talk to Jesus. This is the ninth interaction, a conversation that Jesus has had with some Pharisees, and not once did they ever leave feeling satisfied. Not once did they ever leave saying, he changed my mind. I need to change my life to be in line with God's word, which is the reason we come together. The reason we study God's word is saying, God, what are you trying to teach us, and how do we order our lives to be in line with what God says how we should live? So they show up basically just to irritate him and to pester him. Really what they're doing is they have this debate going on. They've kind of divided themselves into two groups. And they're saying, we're going to ask him the question. There's only two options. He's got to pick this one or that one. And in the process, he'll ostracize half his crowd. So we got him. So they show up. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, these are the guys that spent their lives memorizing the law. So they know Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. She departs out of his house. So they've got two schools of thought already going among the rabbis. One that says, no favor in his eyes, some indecency in her, uh, in her that can only be adultery. She's gone and committed adultery but that's kind of a, a contradiction for these hardliners because they would have already memorized Deuteronomy 22.22, which basically says two people caught in the act of adultery stoned them both because the purpose of the law was to set up the high standard of, of God and to basically say pursue righteousness and abhor evil. So they would have known that their position wasn't tenable as far as Scripture was concerned. The other, the more liberal group, school of scholars said, no, 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 no favor in his eyes? That might mean she's a lousy cook. Maybe she doesn't keep a clean house. Maybe she's a hoarder. Or maybe he's noticed somebody prettier or something. She's finding no favor in his eyes so he could give her a, a bill of divorce. Uh, what is the letter of the law? The letter of the law is divorce is permitted. What is the spirit of the law? Divorce is possible, but it's not preferable. Divorce is a desperate last resort, not a quick fix. See, and they were living in a time kind of like ours, where instead of just having discussion and dissent and respecting other people's opinions, and more and more our society is becoming where there's not a lot of toleration for anybody who says, but what about, or have you thought, or did you consider, or had their own opinion? I think it's getting worse, lots worse. So you have to be careful what you say. And you need to have pre-thought some of this stuff so you can measure your words carefully because you might only get one chance, one statement. For instance, on the issue of same-sex uh, attraction and homosexuality. Christians alive today are really being shoved into two corners, either affirming it, which throws out God's word and what God has to say on the subject, or seen as haters. Well, I don't really want to affirm what God says is, is, is not right or to be considered hating. So we want to be part of a third option, to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. We want to seek to be compassionate to people who are precious to God, which is every person who God has ever created in his image. And we want to be true to God's word all at the same time. And to be known as people of compassion, full of grace and truth. See, there are people, even in our congregation, who deal with same-sex attraction, and they desire to honor God with how he designed people to live 
in spite of their own desires. And they really have a struggle going between the two in a way that heterosexual people don't understand. And in a similar way, many of us who didn't follow God's plan for sex and and sin sexually before we were married or even after we were married, we still do not want to affirm a lifestyle that God says is sinful and be against God's design. So it's a struggle. We're obligated to love and to care for every human, even the sinning ones, not to condone their sin and their choices and their behavior that go against God. So we need to love and to pray and to share the truth with them. And Jesus answered their question, and he managed to stay out of their debate from one side to the other. Here's what he said, verse 4. He said, have you never read, or in other words, you have read, haven't you, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So what Jesus did is he stepped back behind their debate to say God had an original design and a desire, and that was one man and one woman would commit to one another till death do us part, to be seen as one. One man and one woman committed to one another till death do us part. I want to come back to that later and keep tracking with the the Pharisees. So they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed, notice he didn't command, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus takes them all the way back to creation and to the creator and to his intentional creative design, which was hundreds or thousands of years before Moses. And he reaffirms his plan was that one man and one woman would find each other and uh, hold on to each other and make promises that would last their lifetime. Now, I'll give you a little aside on Moses and the law. This is really providing greater support and security for the woman. This was written in a patriarchal society where she was seen as property. And if a man got tired of his wife and decided he would get another one, he could do that. But it would leave the first wife in this limbo, am I married, am I not married? And uh, there, there was no such thing as an unattached woman in their society. So this bill of divorce would actually force clarity. So the woman knew, am I married, am I divorced? Am I free to move on into a different relationship where I can be supported and protected and cherished? Even though it would be very difficult, that would be better protection than just being out there in limbo and then her husband decides on a whim, hey, I'm going to take her back. Second one didn't work out all that well. So she has this bill of divorce to prove that she has been cut free. Well, the disciples, you know, they're not the brightest group. And verse 10, they said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry which we don't know if they were all single. We know some of them were married. Jesus didn't get into that little quandary, but in verse 11 he says to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs that have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made, made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, if we weren't just preaching every paragraph through our way through Matthew, I would jump over this one, this, this eunuch stuff, okay? So just, just so you know, um, 
Here's, here's what I think Jesus is saying, which I don't think it was popular in that day and I, or well-received, and I don't think it's popular or well-received now. But what he's saying is, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, there are people who have set aside their sexuality or sexual expression because it's not as high a priority as the kingdom of heaven. There are some people who are called to celibacy, but not all believers are. There are some who are called to serve Christ while they're married. And the claims of the kingdom of God supersede even our sexuality, that it's more important to God that we follow Him and be part of His kingdom. In Galatians 3, 27, 28, Paul talks about this a little. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think what he's saying is your true center is not your sex, it's not your gender. Those are secondary. Your true center is Jesus Christ. You chose Christ. You were baptized into Christ. You have put on Christ. You're going to go to heaven because of Christ. You're not male or female as your primary identifier. You are Christ's. You're not primarily married or single. You are Christ's. When we put anything in first place in our heart other than Jesus Christ, we are headed away from the light and into darkness. We are headed away from the real deal and toward a counterfeit. Even in our desires, our preferences, and our urges, we need to trust Christ over ourselves. See, the way of self is selfishness. Satisfy your urges. Do what feels good to you. Believe the lie that you are in charge, that you can make up your own sexual rules. And that, that leads to brokenness. Or the way of the world, yelling a lie over and over, louder and louder. Claim to be God. Believe that anything goes as long as you both agree. That leads to destruction. The way of Christ, submit to your own, your own thoughts and your own will and your own wishes and your own urges to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to put Christ in charge of everything in your life. That leads to life that's truly life. It starts with self-denial. The big idea is that God has given us many good gifts, but when sin gets a hold of it, we lose who we really are and what they really are, and the good things can end up being placed in God's place. And that's a problem because then they ensnare and enslave us. Jesus frees us to return, to put God first in our hearts and in our lives. In fact, the next little paragraph is the, the, about people bringing the children. And, the, and uh, Jesus says, uh, you know, we're going to respect the children. So you here have, if you took a broader swath right here, you have Jesus talking about the importance of uh, forgiveness and then relationships and then blessing the children. And what you really see is respect for all people. I want to take the minutes we have left to try to summarize some of this. I think I've kind of gone at it in an ADD sort of way. Um, and Pastor Ron said, you know, you gave 10 points at the end. And when you're on number seven, I felt like I should have started writing some of them down. So you have a blank page there if you want. I will try to take these at a pace that you could, could write some of them down. But number one, Jesus is on a mission and he invites you to walk with him. That means you walk his way, in his path, in his timing, with him as the leader. Jesus is on a mission. He invites us to walk with him. Number two, walking with Jesus is another way of saying that you've submitted your will to the will of God. In other words, you have intentionally placed yourself under him. 
Number three, God loves people. He's created the world with many blessings to be enjoyed, including sex and sexuality. But the greatest joy is honoring God with your whole life and submitting to his plan. That's what's going to bring you the greatest satisfaction and joy in life. Number four, God gave his word as a blessing. It gives us guidance and feedback to our lives. Our best response is to live within his guidelines. Number five, God's original design and desire for marriage. One man and one woman committed to each other until death do us part. Now, if you say, you know, but that doesn't fit me and my situation and my, who I am, well, then know this. It's still God's plan, and God still loves you. And he still wants his best for you, and it would be a struggle and a sacrifice for you in ways that other people do not share or understand. So he will still call on you to follow his path because it's the only path that leads to life. Now, I've had times where, you know, I mean, all the time, I always like to eat. So there's always a struggle with it when I was in the Air Force to stay within their weight requirements. And somebody finally explained, you know, those two paths of staying fit and in shape and eating everything you want, especially late at night, are really going two different directions. And somebody explained, you know, you will never get over this struggle. You'll fight with this all your life, but it's worth the fight. It's worth the struggle. Don't give up. And some people in their, in their sexual makeup are, are the same way. They were never, they're never going to get over the struggle, but it's worth struggle, and it's worth claiming Christ and holding on to Christ through thick and thin. Number seven, no one has a clean record in this area of dealing with sex and sexuality. We've all been damaged in some way, and we need the light of Christ and his healing in our lives. It's all of us. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And number eight, straightness doesn't save you. Only Jesus does. Number nine, the most important thing in your life is your relationship with, Christ, with Jesus Christ. Your eternity depends on it. Think about this. You could go your whole life, never have sexual relations, live a full life, and go to heaven. You cannot choose the other path of just living out your urges and ignore Christ your whole life and think you're going to live forever in his heaven. It's by invitation only. Number 10, God wants to be the primary relationship in your life and the dominant factor in your every thought, every decision, and every action, anything else, and you've exchanged the truth for a lie. You've traded the real deal for a counterfeit. Now, I know in a room this size, there are people who are struggling with this, and there are people who are grieving over somebody you know. You each and we all have to say, how am I going to decide? Is it my personal preference? Is it the way of the world? Or am I going to follow God's guidance? And maybe you're praying for somebody. And I want to give you just a little encouragement on that. I've been reading this book, Gay Girl, Good God. Gay Girl, Good God. I'm going to read some on page 60. It's a girl who grew up in a broken home, hardly ever saw her father, and felt lesbian urges since before she even knew the names for them. And in her own struggle, there were people around her who knew uh, the Lord and would share some with her. And so one night, she's trying to fall asleep. Her name is Jackie, and her mind is wandering like maybe yours does when you're trying to fall asleep. And somehow they wander into, so here she's in her own bed in the dark, and she begins to have thoughts of Christ. She said, I remember Jesus. 
I thought about his hands gesturing sinners to come, waving each back and forth continuously, unhesitatingly, as if with each time he was saying, come, please come. Where else can you go to find life except through me? Come, all sinners, come. It was maddening to try and sleep with so much noise in the room. <laughs> it's all in her head. Keisha was a Christian and my cousin. I had the numbers of very few Christians in my phone and even fewer that I could actually call and have a conversation with that didn't end up in a one-sided dialogue on the book of Leviticus. God was haunting me. Keisha knew him already, so my hope was that she could help me understand why. God knew I was gay, and she did too. So, she was, so why was he talking to me so much? And what did I have to do to quiet him down? Keisha, I feel like God is calling me. Okay. I felt her nod her head. Why do you think that? Because, I don't know, it's like it just feels like it. Like, whatever I do, I can sense God trying to get my attention. Like, even when I'm being myself, I can feel how wrong it is. Mm. But the thing is, I don't want God, like, I really don't. She had known me since I'd come out of the womb and was more than a decade older than me. She took a breath, a deep, God use me kind of breath, and said, I've been praying for you. When you told me you were gay, I blamed myself. Said, God, could I have been in her life more? I thought it had to be something I did wrong. But God told me, just pray. I said nothing, not wanting to disrupt her train of thought of honest thought. Then God told me to give you to him, to not worry about it. But I told God how much I loved you, cuz. I didn't know how to just let this go. And you know what he told me? She laughed a little like she was setting me up for the punchline of a joke. He told me, I love her more than you do. And since then, I've just been praying She chuckled again like she knew something I didn't. I'm not worried about you, Jackie. God's hand is on you, and he's going to do what he has to do to show you how much you need him. Do you know we all need him today? Some just a little bit. Some just a lot. My prayer is as we look at these areas, we each come to the place of saying, God, you be in charge. I'll do my best to follow. I want to be somebody who represents Christ and does it with grace and truth. Don't you? Let's pray together. God, there are people who really struggle. And there are urges that don't come from you. And there are, the world is just screaming its lies, injecting them into our thoughts and in our conversation and into our education system and into every aspect of our lives. And then there's the Word of God. And you are that still small voice that still is calling to us, come and live in the light. Come live by the truth. Come celebrate the gifts that God has given. And we can get so confused and so mixed up and so sideways and so broken. And I thank you that there's Jesus and that you love us. And you call us your own. And so we claim you. We come to, in Christ. And I thank you that we are clothed with Christ. And you, we are seen in your righteousness. We love you and we need you more than ever.
Thank you, Jesus. Amen.